If you have your Bible, you may already be there. You heard our reading, but our reading. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning, verses 1 through 11, which Patrick already read. And uh, we're just going to go right into this. So if you're, you just, we'll get there in just a moment. And, uh, but we'll get started with the way of introduction. So Abraham Lincoln said, uh, America will never be destroyed from the outside. If we lose our freedoms, it will be because we have destroyed ourselves from within. Now, this is, this is the greatest danger to America, destruction from without. You know, when we, when we think about that, you, you, you know, you think about a foreign enemy coming in and taking America. I, I, I don't see that happening. America is armed better than any nation in the world the, the, uh, the, uh, of, of what we have, of what normal citizens have in the way of protecting themselves. So we're not too concerned about really someone coming in and taking us over and destroying us. Destruction from without. But the, but the real danger is what Abraham Lincoln said, is that destruction that comes from within. And I feel that we may be actually seeing that truth being played out today in front of us. That's not what I'm here to preach about, but that's in the way of introduction. So it is no different in the church. Now, I hear people that they're, they're really scared about the persecutions that are coming and the attacks from outside the church. Can I tell you, those are not the greatest concern that I have. I don't think the church is going to be destroyed from outside. It's not going to be from, it's not going to be from those things that come against Bible-believing and Bible-preaching churches from outside that would, would be a danger to us. I, I, the, most, the thing I fear most is, is this, this strife and backbiting and disunity Within the church, those are the things that can tear down a church. Those are the things that will hurt us. Now, now we're strongest when we are in unity and we stand against the, ta- the attacks of the enemy. That's when we're at our strongest as a church. When we unify together, when we band together, and we, f- we fight together for what is right. We are weakest and most vulnerable when we are fighting each other. Uh, uh, and here's the thing, we're fighting each other over non-biblical issues. Now understand, we will fight over biblical issues. We will fight to, protect, to, to prevent corrupt doctrine from coming into church. We're going to stand against that, and our fighting will be in unity against those types of things. But within the church, we need unity. So outside of that, the, the, the one thing we should be fighting for in the church is unity. That's the only fight we ought to be having is to protect unity. Now, the Philippians and, and we today, when we look at the scripture, must be united not only against their common foes, and we need to be you know, united against those common foes, but also united in heart and mind and in mutual regard for one another. That's an important part of this. So verses 1 through 4, if you go back and you look at this in the original language, it it really is a a one long sentence. Verses 1 through 4 is really one single sentence. And and it's a passionate appeal by the Apostle Paul for unity and mutual care within the church. And that's what we want to look at this morning. So how do we have that? How do we have this unity and and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but so let's just walk through the points and see what Paul, excuse me, what Paul is teaching us this morning here from Philippians chapter 2. Now, point number one, if you have the handout, is this. It's the call for unity. Verses 1 and 2 give us this call for unity. And here, Paul is calling for the body of Christ 
to be unified, that there be unity within the body of Christ. Verse 1 says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, he says, if there's any of these things in the body of Christ, if, if you are believers and you have these things, he said, then do this, fulfill my joy. He really is saying, fill up my joy. You want to fill up my joy? Then here's what you do. You do this by being like-minded, having the same love, and being of one accord, of one mind. There's a singleness of mind there. There's a unity that Paul is speaking of there. There's a unity that he's calling for there, and that's what we need in this church. That's what we need in in any Bible-believing church. There needs to be this like-mindedness, this having the same love of one accord, of one mind. We need, to, we need that in order to, to have unity within the church. Now, I've, I've shared this story before. I'm going to share it again, though. Um, when you talk about unity, I can't help but think of coon dogs. When coon dogs go coon hunting, and some of you don't even have a clue what in the world I'm talking about, but there's places in the world that they actually hunt raccoons, and they'll take the dogs. They've trained these dogs to hunt raccoons, and they'll chase them, they'll tree them, and you, you've seen old movies, and the, the old dog is up on, the old bloodhound is up on the tree, and he's howling, barking, and lets them know they've treed the coon. So they can come then and shoot the coon out of the tree or whatever it is they're going to do. But here's the thing about coon dogs. Coon dogs are trained to do a specific things. Now, you take those coon dogs, and at home they're good, but you put them in the back of the truck, you put them in a cage, and all of a sudden, here's what they start doing. They start fighting. And now I can imagine what the old coon dogs are saying. Get out of my way. Get off of me. You're, you're pressing on my side. This is my spot. Leave me alone. Get out of here. What are you barking? What are you looking at? You know, it's that kind of stuff. You're in my seat. It's those kind of things. And these coon dogs are getting all upset about it. But here's what's the amazing thing is when they park the truck, they get out where they're going to hunt. They park the truck and they pop open the, the, the tailgate and they pop open the cage and they pull those coons out and they put them on the, on, out doing what they're trained to do and what they are. are, are you know what? They get into unison. And they're no longer fighting each other. No, there's no backbiting and they're not after, after each other. They're on a single purpose. Folks, we have a single purpose. That is to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our battle cry. And there ought to be unity when we are doing what it is God's called us to do. And that's what Paul is saying. He's calling for this like-mindedness. Don't get caught up in who's in your seat. There's other places to sit in here. Don't get caught up in, well, I didn't like that color carpet that they chose. I didn't like the font that they put up that text on the wall with. You know, those are the things that divide. And we get caught up in in our preferences. Paul is speaking against those things. He's saying, man, y'all bark up the same tree. Get on that coon and do it together in unity. That's what Paul's calling for is unity. But then there's the call not only for unity, but we see here the call for humility. Because without the one, we're not going to have the other. And he's calling here in verses 3 and 4, there's a call here for humility. And and let me tell you this, pride is the enemy of unity. Pride is the enemy. You want to break up unity, you want to have problems in a group, pride will do it quicker than anything else. Martin Luther reportedly told this story of two mountain goats who met each other on a narrow ledge, just wide enough for one of the animals to pass. 
And so on one side of this is just a sheer cliff all the way, hundreds of hundreds of feet to the bottom to sheer death. And on the other side is a steep wall where so that they're, they're stuck. They're there. The two, the two were facing each other, and it was impossible to turn around or to go back. So how did they resolve their dilemma? They're, they're there. Now, I can tell you this. If it had been two people... If it had been two people, especially two people in church, here's what they would have done. They had started butting each other, wanting to get their way. You, you back up. You get out of my way. You let me through. You, you, you know, I'm in, I've got places to be. I've got more important things to do. You, do you know who I am? It'd be that kind of thing. And, and, until, and what they would do is they'd begin to push and to butt each other until both of them plunged off into the chasm below. But according to Luther, the goats had more sense than that. One of them laid down on the trail and let the other goat literally walk over him in order to save both of them. Now, that's what we ought to do, folks. I could almost wrap up the message right there. I'm not going to, but I could almost, because that, that, that's that goat theology. That Here we think of these goats as just being stubborn animals, and what did it do? It laid down in there. It laid down so that the other one could literally walk on it and walk over it and get by. And by doing that, both of them were saved. As Christ followers, we must learn to exercise humility. We have to. Verse 3 here says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Now, the words there for in lowliness of mind, you may have a different... This is the New King James. You may have a different translation. Some other translations say in humility or something similar to that. But what the real meaning is, the, the, the most literal sense is simply this. It's a humble mindset or a humble attitude. That's what he's talking about, this lowliness of mind. It's just a humble attitude, a humble mindset. So if, if you want to live out the mind of Christ in your home or at work or in relationships or in traffic, in traffic, uh, at Walmart, uh, or, or just really anywhere in life, then we must adopt the, the humble attitude that esteems others higher than ourselves. The question that logically follows is simple. How? How do we do that? Well, look at verse 3 again. It says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. You'll notice that this verse is it's essentially broken into two parts. And there's the don't do this, but do do this. And that's what, that's what it's saying. So do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Now, basically, if these things are found, if selfish ambition and conceit are found in you, then obviously the mind of Christ, humility, is not. It's that simple. So in your heart, in your, in your actions, there should be no selfish ambition or conceit found there. In fact, when Paul wrote this verse, the word we translate as nothing was actually a double negative. So what he literally says was, let nothing, nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. He was striking the point, this double negative. So he lists these two sinful attitudes, selfish ambition and conceit. Now, selfish ambition is this. It is a self-promoting heart. That's selfish ambition. Kind of seems self-explanatory, right? But it's this self-promoting heart. It's about me. And, and it's all about who gets the glory. So actions are taken and efforts are made so that recognition is on yourself rather than on God. 
Now, notice the word Paul used here, and it's the word that we translate as selfish ambition. It's actually a word that was used in his day as a reference to, listen to this, politicians who would travel around garnering support. That fits today, doesn't it? This selfish ambition. And it's the same thing, the way they would describe politicians who traveled around garnering support. And so here's what comes to mind. Self-promoting, self-seeking, self-serving, self-recognition, self, self, self. Me, me, me. Selfish ambition. You know, not much has changed, right? I mean, we understand that same word, that same understanding today. We have the same understanding for that that they would have had back then. Now, conceit is a word that, that's not often, it's not used near as often now as it used to be. Some of us, um, some of us more mature, some of us more mature members, mature members would remember someone saying something like this. They would say, well, oh, you know, so-and-so, they are so conceited. How many of you know, you, you, you know what that, you've heard that, you've heard those kind of things. It's, it's none of the young people raising their hands. I wonder why. So they, they don't, they, they won't use that that way today. But, it, but here's what it means. It means that they're full of themselves. If someone's conceited, they're full of themselves. So today we might better use the word ego. We understand the word ego today. We would, we would, we would get that. So, you know, I attended a church conference years ago. I'll never forget what the moderator said at the very outset of the of, of the conference, and, and he told this. He told the folks there, he said, hey, I want to encourage you to do something. He said, we need to start out right. So he said, you need to check your logos because everybody's got their logo monogrammed shirt of their church logo and, and, and you know, how neat their, their nice polo is or whatever. I mean, it's amazing. You go to these things, and it's everywhere. We got our, our He said, check your logos and your egos at the door. We understood that. We understood what he was saying. Come in here, humble yourself, and come in here so that you can listen, you can learn, you can grow. So conceit translates to empty glorying, glorying, and uh, sometimes translated vainglory, but, it, but it's just this idea of an inflated ego. Do nothing out of an inflated ego. Now, um, it, it would be kind of like this. So sometimes we get caught up in the, in the praise of men. And we see it a lot in sports. You know, somebody hears so much how great they are or somebody that's made a lot of money, they hear how great they are or somebody that's been in a movie or they sang a song and they just hear how great they are and everybody tells them how great they are and so they begin to believe how great they are. And, and what happens is they begin, they, they begin to desire and they begin to feed off of that recognition and that, and that praise and the things that people say. Now, they're not the only ones that can fall prey to that. You know, as a pastor, pastors are, 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 are you know, here, so here's how that would look. So pastor preaches a message and, and, and somebody comes up and they tell them how much the sermon impacted their life. It changed their life. The, the message just was great. And, and, and they start to think that they did something. Pastor starts to think, boy, I did something. And they get this attitude of my preaching saves souls. Oh, surely no preacher would ever think that way. I wish. No preacher ever thought that way. But preachers are humans. We're people with a, with a fallen nature. And uh, so when, in fact, it, here's the deal. It was the Holy Spirit working through them, through the Word of God. The preacher's just an instrument, 
And, and yet they get this idea that it's them that, that, that's doing something. Now, I can tell you there's been times where I've preached messages, and, and sometimes you think, man, that, I think that was a pretty good message, and you not hear a single word. And there's times I've come up and preached a message and, and, and come out of the pulpit and go, boy, that was, that was a bomb. If anybody got anything out of that, that that'll, that'll shock me. Cause that just, and have people come up and go, you're speaking right to me. God spoke right to my heart in that. And you know what? When that happens, here's what I know. God, you're doing this because it ain't about me. All I am is an instrument. He is just speaking through me. Hopefully, I listen as he speaks to me and I allow him to speak through me. But it is about him. It ain't about me. And that's the danger we all can face is that we begin to think it's more about me than it really is. So the verse begins with two sinful attitudes that we're not to have, and it finishes with this right attitude. And, and you, you can call it, kind of look at this as like a biblical safeguard. Again, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. So don't do anything this way, but in lowliness of mind and humility um, of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So there's a balance here. To keep from doing this, then you need to do this. Now, you can't be self-promoting and self-inflating if you're thinking about others better than yourself. It's just an impossibility. You, know, you can't be puffing yourself up because if you're puffing yourself up, you're not paying any attention to anybody else. But if you're esteeming others higher than yourself, then it's impossible. You're not going to be getting all puffed up and inflated. And that's what Paul's telling us here. So it just doesn't work that way. Either you're better or they're better. And it's your mindset that's going to determine how you respond to that and then what your attitude's going to be about that. So God says, consider others as more important, as better than yourself. So what, what does this do? Well, it keeps us from getting this holier-than-thou attitude. You ever met anybody that had a holier-than-thou attitude? I'll raise my hand because I'm not saying I've, I've met people that have that attitude. I've had that attitude. And probably any Christian here who's going to be honest with themselves will admit, I've had that attitude. I thought I had it figured out. I thought I was the holy one in that situation. I thought I was being righteous and really wasn't. It was just me being selfish, me being prideful, me wanting to have my way. We can all get that attitude. We should consider our interactions with others as an honor and a privilege. And we should let others know that we feel this way. We should be we thank, uh, thanking others for their time, even if they seek you out. You should give that person your undivided attention because that says a lot. Now, I want to apologize to people. And I'd ask you to, uh, I, I like when I talk to people to be engaged right there. But here's what I know happens, and you may, you may sense it or see it. I hope you don't. But here's what happens in, in a church. Here's what happens. And Raymond probably experienced it. Any teacher, John's probably experienced it, is I'm talking to someone and someone else comes up here, someone else comes up here. And I know they, they're, they're waiting to speak. And it's hard to focus right here because you got somebody coming right up here. Now, I'm not criticizing anybody that comes up because they're, they're waiting. They're, but it's a distraction for me. And where I'm trying to talk to Henry, I'm thinking about, and, but I'm over here. Or I see something happen back there. It's the squirrel, you know, squirrel. <laughs> it's that. So if, if I've ever done that, please forgive me. Because if you get in a room with me and you sit down one-on-one, -on -one, you'll see that I, I, I want to focus on you. 
But those things can happen. And, and what we need to do when we're having a conversation with someone, we need to give them our attention. Because that's important. It means a lot. And we're talking about the success of something. We should acknowledge the accomplishments and strengths of others. We should share the praise and share the, the glory when something goes right. We should speak kindly and respectfully with others. Amen? Let me say that one again. We should speak kindly and respectfully with others. Amen. Scripture makes it very clear how we should communicate with each other as brothers and sisters, as mothers and fathers. We should, we should be respectful to each other. Notice what Paul does in Philippians 1.1. If you went back to the, the beginning of the chapter of the book here that we're in, 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 in the very opening verse, it says, Paul and Timothy, Paul's writing, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. He writes to overseers and deacons and identifies himself not as Apostle Paul. It's me, Paul, the great apostle. He doesn't do that. He identifies himself as a servant. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. He sincerely lifts others up while sincerely identifying as whom he truly is, just a servant of Christ Paul notes that humility is valuing others above yourself. So when you think of pride, it always gives preference to self, not to others. Now, I'm, I'm, I apologize when I give football uh, illustrations. It's probably not the best cross-cultural communication I can do because a lot of people in here go, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. But there was a guy in the NFL named Terrell Owens back several years ago. If you watched the NFL, you knew Terrell Owens. And for a while there, he was a very dominant wide receiver in the game. But Terrell Owens made this comment one time. He said, I love me some me. Do you get what he just said? I, lo I love me some me. And he didn't say it like, I love me some me. It was, I love me some me. I love me some me. I love me. Get what he's saying? It's pride. Just pride. Psalm, one, uh, Psalm uh, chapter 10 verse 4 says this, is the wicked in his pride, uh, the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God, but is in none of his thoughts. God is in none of his thoughts. So pride excludes God and has no room for God. And so if a proud person could do this to God, then, then he can surely do it to any other fellow human being. And folks, we as Christians aren't exempt from that. If we get a proud spirit, then, then our eyes are on us. And our proud countenance, our proud attitude, our holier-than-thou attitude, you know what? We don't have any place for God in our thoughts, in our mind. And if we don't have God in our thoughts, we certainly aren't going to be concerned with someone else. Now, the late Professor Erwin Edmond of Columbia University once had a chat with a French monk who bemoaned the fact that his order was not as famous as the Jesuits for scholarship or the Trappist for silence and good works. But, he said, when it comes to humility, we're tops. <laughs> I was going to bring in a joke about, you know, the guy that wrote the book about, you know, you know, seven steps to humility and how I achieved it or, or, or my great, you know, humility, my greatest strength or whatever, you know, um, that, that kind of, but I, you don't need it when somebody's saying, you know, when it comes to humility, 
we're the tops. We're the best. We're the most humble out there. We got to watch it. When we, when we walk in pride, we too exclude God. Luke 18, verses 9 through 13. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, now you got to picture it. He's praying out loud so everybody around can hear him. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off, who would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breath, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now here's Jesus. Here's what Jesus says of this situation. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, speaking of the tax collector, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Don't do anything for selfish purposes which result in creating strife and separation. And when we do, here's what we should do. Because we're human, right? We're going to make mistakes. I'm going to speak to someone in a way that I shouldn't. I'm going to do things that I shouldn't do. I'm going to have an attitude I shouldn't have. But when I realize it, when the Lord convicts me of that, then here's what we should do. We should quickly repent of that sin. We should confess that sin. And we should seek forgiveness. You know, if we, if we speak to someone in a way we shouldn't, we should confess that. We should go to them and, and, and seek forgiveness from them for, for that. Gosh, that goes such a long way in our churches. goes such a long way in healing divisions that can come within our church. So why would we ever be proud? Why as a believer would we ever be proud? First, uh, First Chronicles chapter 29 verse 14 says, But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? Listen to what they say. For all things come from you, capital Y, speaking of God. For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. Here's what we do. We pride ourselves on, on my tithing. I pride myself on my giving. I pride myself. I get proud about, boy, I'm, 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 look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm doing. Here's what I'm doing. I'm giving God 10% of what's His. That, that's your kids going in on your, your dresser and, and getting a $10 bill off your dresser and coming to church and you look what I gave. Look what I gave. No, you didn't give that. We're just, we're just giving back what God has given us because we haven't done anything. We don't have a single thing. Cliff, your good looks. You didn't do anything to get that. God did that. Thank him for it. The Bible reminds us that everything we have comes from God, our provider. And this is, this is no basis, so there is no basis for pride and arrogance. In the Christian's life, there is no place for pride and arrogance. So the antidote for selfish ambition and conceit is to be humble toward God. We cannot be humble toward, toward others if we're not first humble towards God. So humility is one of the most important Christian moral attitudes. 
It's important we have that. Now look at verse 4. Let each of you look not not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Now, let me say this about this verse. This is not an endorsement on you being a nosy busybody. That's not what this verse is endorsing. But it says that I should not look only out for my own interest or my own business, but I should be looking out at the interest of others. That's not what the verse is saying. So this is not your excuse to be a nosy busybody, okay? That's, don't come to me and say, well, preacher, that, the Bible said that. That's not what the Bible's saying here. So I want to think of it in this terms. When, I'm, when I was reading that verse, here's what I thought of with interest or interests. I thought about like your financial advisor. Let's say you have a financial advisor. Now, what do you want your financial advisor to do? Do you, do, do you want your financial advisor to be in the poorhouse? I don't really want him to be that. But do you want your financial advisor doing everything for himself and not doing anything to look out for you? You don't want that either. Look at what the verse says. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Man, here's what we should do. The, the scriptures aren't telling us here to ignore ourselves and only look out for others, but it's telling us here, take care of your business and look out for the interest of others. You know, I need to, I need to it's kind of like the airplane thing. If the airplane's going down and the mask drops, what do they tell you to do? Put your mask on. Put your mask on first because if you, if you pass out, you can't help anybody else. So take care of the things you need to take care of. And at the same time, you look out for other people. You're looking out for what is, is good for them. You need to be a wingman. Raymond is a wingman for me. If he sees something in my life, Brother Raymond is going to say, Pastor, I, I'm seeing this or I'm hearing that. You, maybe, you know, let's talk about that. Is there something going on? He's, he's there to look out for me. He's to, to look for those blind spots in my own life that maybe I can't see. We're to help each other in that way. But you know what we do? Pride rears up and says, Raymond, ain't none of your business. That would be a prideful attitude. A humble attitude would say, Brother, let me, let me tell you what's going on. Let me, and you can help me. You can pray with me. That's how we should respond to those situations. That's just what this verse is telling us. Look out for what's going on. You do what you're supposed to do, but you look out for them too. Imagine in this church that we're all busy about our walk with Christ, but we're looking out for everybody around us and helping them in their walk with Christ. Imagine the encouragement that comes in when I go, man, somebody looked down Sunday. I'm going to write him a card. So-and-so, you know what? When I spoke to him, he just didn't seem himself. I'm going to send him a text. I'm going to give him a call. I'm going to see if they want to go get breakfast or have lunch or whatever. What if we constantly were looking out for others to, to try to make sure that they're where they need to be? That's what we need to do, folks. Number three. We look at Christ's example of humility, verses 5 through 8. Verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. You know what? This is, this is we, what it's saying is you need to have the same mindset, the same attitude, the same humble spirit as the Lord Jesus Christ. The attitude that he have, that's what you need to have. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. That's us, folks. If you're born again, we're not to live unto ourselves, but unto him which died for us and rose again. It's very clear. 
We are to live our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, we are, and, in, and in doing that, he's told us to live our lives like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not perfect. I'm not sinless. I'm not going to be on this side of glory. But my striving and my seeking should be to be like Christ. Surrender everything to him. So my mindset has to be like his. Well, what was his mindset? How did Christ show his humility? When we look at verse 6, Christ here who being in the form of God, he had been with God forever, forever, for, for all of eternity. He had been in the presence of God Almighty the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Then, then Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He didn't try to hold on to that. He didn't fight the, the plan for him to come to earth and become a man. He didn't fight that. He didn't try to grasp on to, no, I'm God and I'm equal with God. Because he knew he was God. And he humbled himself. That's a humble mindset. But, be, but, but made, look what he did. But made himself of no reputation. Christ made himself. He, he put himself into the creation. Made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, of a slave, and, call, uh, and coming in the likeness of men. There's probably, I, I, I was thinking, and, and I, hope this, I hope this statement's accurate, but I don't know of any greater humility ever than God condescending to become man. There's not even, a, we can't even fathom it. You know, we would think, well, what if you could, you know, if you were going to humble yourself and if you could do it, you humbled yourself and you became an ant. That doesn't even begin to, 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 we're talking about God who created everything that is, who created us, who created it all. And yet he comes in and becomes part of his own creation. That's Humility. Verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So a few things we learn here. A is, um, he is God, but he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant. So you notice the contrast. So by nature, Jesus is God, but he assumed the nature of a servant. He, he assumed the nature as we are. Again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was with the Father for all of eternity. He was, he was there with Him at creation. He's there with the Father now. But in the beginning, Jesus is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Don't ever confuse who Jesus is. He is God. He's not a created being. Jesus didn't begin to exist when, when Mary conceived of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had always been. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He came to this earth. Now he is the visible image for us to see God. The only way we've seen God is by seeing Jesus. Christ was God, but he did not demand equality with God nor use his divinity to, to his own advantage. He humbly, humbly, he became like us and lived like us to show us how to live. And you think about, so we see where he humbled himself and became a man, but we also see in his living how he humbled himself. And probably the greatest story we have is, is what you see right here in, in, the, in the picture on the screen. 
We think of that. When, when, when you think of the Last Supper and the preparations had been made, Jesus sent some of the disciples to go and make the preparations for the Passover meal, for what became the Last Supper. And, and what they failed to do, they should have had someone who was going to be at the door to wash their feet. That was customary. As they came in, their feet are nasty. They're walking through the streets. Everything is in the streets. So their feet are nasty. They're dirty. And as they come in and they're going to lounge there, they didn't sit in chairs at tables. They would lounge. They would actually lay out kind of on their side often to eat. And so they're sitting there, their feet are there, their feet are close to that. You want your feet clean. I mean, we're fixing to eat, right? Nobody washed their feet when they came in. Well, here's the other thing. Not a single disciple said, I'll take that job. You know what? Not a single disciple stepped up. Or, well, let me not, not stepped up. Not a single disciple, disciple was humble enough to stoop down to wash the other's feet. So what did they do? The Lord himself, he, he, he set aside his garment and he took a towel and he took a basin and he went around. The Lord Jesus, God in flesh, went around and washed these stinking sinners' feet. He showed us how to serve. He showed us what humility was. And then B, he also showed his, his humility by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now the cross is just not a symbol of suffering. We think of it as suffering. But it's not just a symbol of suffering. It's a symbol also of condemnation and shame. So during the time of Christ, the cross was, was a punishment for criminals and the immoral. And Jesus, despite his sinlessness and his righteousness, he embraced that condemnation and the, and the degradation by men. You know, sometimes we complain because we, we feel like we don't deserve condemnation. We don't deserve that degradation from others. But, but, but maybe, maybe we don't. Maybe in that particular situation we don't. Maybe from time to time we don't. But in reality, folks, if we really want to embrace this, we've got to understand that we really only deserve one thing, and that's hell. That's what we deserve. Yeah, and you've got to come to that understanding that our sin has separated us from God. And, and without the salvation that, that, that God brings, that new life that God brings through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then the only thing I deserve is, Jesus, is, is hell. That's all I deserve. And there's nothing I can deserve to do to deserve anything other than that. It's all what Jesus did for us. Jesus is the only one who could truly say, absolutely, I don't deserve this and be 100% right. He didn't deserve anything that came upon him. He didn't deserve any of that. And yet, Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, by also by one man's obedience, speaking of Christ, by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Jesus obeyed the Father's will. He fulfilled the plan. He came... He was born of a virgin. He, he became a man. He lived a sinless life. And, and, and he went to the, the Mount Calvary. He went to that cross. They nailed him to that cross. He took upon himself our sin. The scripture says he became our sin. Jesus did that. And by his obedience and dying in your place, in my place, he died. He paid your penalty. It, the debt has been paid. It's done. People say, what must I do? The Philippian jailer came out and said, what must I do to be saved? There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to earn it. Christ has done everything and he offers it to us. He offers us his righteousness and he takes our condemnation. He's already done it. He's already paid. 
but it requires us to repent of our sin and to turn to Him, confessing ourselves sinner. And the only way I can get to heaven is through Christ acknowledging that and calling on the name of the Lord for salvation. God in His humility thought about us. And He emptied Himself of His divinity and became like us and served us and humbled Himself and went to the cross and died for us to make the way. Jesus didn't come to make a way. How foolish would that be for Christ, for God to come and die if that was just to make a way? Oh, there's other ways. Folks, there are no other ways. The only way, the way is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. The last thing that we'll look at here is the reward of humility. Verses 9 through 11, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As a result of Christ's humility, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And so there's three truths that stand out in these verses. First is this, God exalted him. God exalted Christ. He exalted him. The second thing is that God gave him the name that is above every name. He already had great names, but he has the name that is above every name. Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus. He is the Lord. It is his name. There is no other name. There's not a name at all that's higher than the name of Jesus Christ. And the third thing is this, that every knee will bow and every tongue. And if you saw in my notes, every is capitalized. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now Luke 14, 11 says, For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Folks, you cannot come to Christ if you don't humble yourself. If you exalt yourself here, you will be humbled in judgment. If you humble yourself here before God, then you can be exalted in, in, the, in the judgment in the afterlife. 1 Peter 5, 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Romans 14, 11, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. The, the Bible declares that every knee should bow to only one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 4, 12 says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Folks, there is not another way. There is only one way to heaven. And it is through a personal relationship with the Lord, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. We have to bow. We can bow now in repentance for eternal salvation, or we will bow at the judgment unto eternal damnation. So as I conclude this morning, just a couple of questions and we'll, and we'll have our invitation. My question for you this morning, Christian, is this. Will you humble yourself and seek unity in the body of Christ? I, we have great unity in our church, but we're not perfect. We're not, we're not going to be perfect. But we have great unity, but we can have greater unity. We, we can... We can we can all be hitting that same nail and, and not get caught up in the peripheral stuff. 
But it requires us to humble ourselves. So will, 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 will you, will I humble myself and seek unity in the body of Christ? Will you do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit, but in humble, Christ-like attitude esteem others better than yourself? Will you repent, confess, and seek forgiveness when you fail in this area? And maybe, maybe we need to humble ourselves and forgive someone today who maybe has hurt our feelings. Maybe, maybe someone, they butted heads and they butted harder than I did. And, you know, I got hurt. I got my feelings hurt. And I'm not diminishing that at all. But it takes humility to just say, you know what? I forgive that. I'll let that go. Lord, I give it to you and, and I forgive them for that. And maybe you should go and tell them. Maybe you've, you've had words with somebody. Maybe you need to go to them and say, hey, I'm, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Will you humble yourself? And this morning, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, if you've never been born again, the simple question this morning is today. Today, would you bow your knee and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? And I don't know your heart. As I look around the room, I, I know a lot of you. I know a lot of you real well, but I don't know your heart. You, there could be someone in here who I would, I would just, I would swear they knew the Lord. They were saved, and they not be. And people go, well, I could never go down. Even, even if I'm, I could never go down, people would know. So what? Do not be concerned with anybody else in this room. The only one in this room you should be concerned with is the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, I would invite you to, to step out here in a moment. We're going to have a song again. And uh, I'd invite you to step out, come down, and let one of us take the, take the Word of God and introduce you to the Lord Jesus this morning. We'll, we'll, we'll clearly explain the gospel, what it means to be saved, and how this morning you can know that you have eternal life. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this time. I pray, Father, that you would bless in this invitation. Lord, even now, Lord, humble our hearts and may we humble our hearts. Lord, if we don't humble our hearts, we're going to have a hard time hearing from you and then being obedient to you. So, Lord, may we humble ourselves now and listen to that still small voice as you speak to our hearts, as you call us forward, as you, as you convict us, as you reveal to us sin, you reveal things we need to confess, you reveal attitudes that are wrong, as you reveal that we need to be saved. And Lord, give us the, the courage to step out this morning and respond, however it is you're leading. I just pray that, Lord, you would move in a mighty way now in this invitation. In Jesus' name I pray.